I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week as part of a Sports Media Roundtable and man, do we have a lot to talk about. Chad Finn is the Sports Media Writer and General Columnist for the Boston Globe. Austin Karp, Managing Editor slash Digital of Sports Business Journal. They've been guests before and I welcome them back to the Sports Media Podcast. Welcome Chad and Austin. I imagine you know what the lead topic is going to be. <laughs> got a hunch. Got a hunch. Trying to think of a, a wise guy comment, but uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> not coming to me right now. Keep thinking of that, Chad. All right, I'm going to start with Chad Finn, obviously, because he's in Boston. We are taping this just hours after Tom Brady has been announced by Lachlan Murdoch, uh, CEO. Probably got a couple other titles of Fox Corp as a new Fox Sports employee. Whenever he retires um it is a it is a pretty stunning or it was a pretty stunning announcement chad and i have actually and chad has been part of an athletic column on this uh about brady's interest in media and we've already seen that when it comes to his uh, his documentary that he did man in the arena we know that brady's sort of getting involved in hollywood obviously he's got a production company massive connections so the stunning part isn't necessarily that Tom Brady would have a post-football career in media. The stunning part, at least to me, is that he has, at least at this point, and we still have to see it, but at least at this point decided to head into the role of the traditional number one analyst, which is a 1920-a-week uh, you know, travel around the country job where you go to all these, uh, these games and you are um, – like Troy Aikman and Chris Collinsworth, et cetera, you are one of the, Tony Romo, one of the primary people delivering football to a gigantic audience in this country. All right, Chad, let me just start with you. Like, big picture, um, were you as surprised as me when when you read this morning uh, that what Lachlan Murdoch had announced? I was, though I wish I had the wisdom to foresee a little bit of this after the money started getting to where it was with guys like Romo and Aikman, you know, especially Aikman getting the uh, little over 18 million a year to go to ESPN and uh, starting to get those numbers where the uh, highest profile NFL analysts were making as much uh, as, as some really high profile NFL players, especially guys who aren't on their second contract yet. So uh, I wish a bell had gone off in my head. I'm kind of kicking myself about it to think that somebody might just throw absurd money at Brady to the point where uh, the money combined with probably some promises about what he can't, what he has to do and what he doesn't and a lot of flexibility um, that it didn't go off in my mind to think, you know, maybe somebody is just going to throw absolutely crazy money that blows everything else out of the water here and uh, uh, convinces Brady to do it. I mean, this this contract, if it's for the uh, $375 million, as, as Andrew Marshand reported, uh, no reason to believe it isn't, 
Uh, that's more money than Tom Brady made playing football for the Patriots and Buccaneers so far in his career. So uh, uh, that is a uh, that's a pretty big enticement for him to do this. But I am surprised because he never gave any indication that it was something that he was thinking about. All right, I want to go to you, Austin, in a second. But uh, as Chad brought up, Andrew Marchand in the New York Post reported uh, the salary on Brady, 10 years, $375 million. Um, it's... I mean, it's I, I. I'm always. I've sort of always said this that you know you're worth what they'll pay you. All these networks will pay you <laughs> if you have leverage and they want you. Um, I have no uh, reason to not believe Marshan's reporting. Uh, he's very. He's been very wired when it comes to salary stuff and props to him. That is a great get by him. Uh, I wish I had it. I will say, Austin and Chad, and I'll, I'll sort of go to you, Austin. I called a lot of TV agents this morning or texted a lot of TV agents. They were all in the uh, agreement that Tom Brady was going to be the highest paid sports broadcaster in America and that this deal was easily going to be over $20 million. None of them, none, none of them went to 37. You know, they all were like, you know, it's going to beat Aikman significantly, but nobody, nobody, at least even speculatively, put that number like in the mid 30s. So, you know, first off, your sort of thought just on the Fox move. And then secondly, if you want to follow up on chat on the salary, I mean, this just just takes like sports broadcasting salary structure to like, you know, Star Trek basically levels. I definitely had that wow reaction. I would not have pegged it at that number. I've been wondering for years what Fox was going to do with the $80 billion they got from Disney in that deal. And, you know, I, I guess they had some change laying around. That they get from. <laughs> but it's a big number. And it is with all these NFL announcers, it, it's almost like like a Super Bowl ad spend. You're paying five, six million dollars just for the spot. But then, OK, you paid that for your NFL rights. So now you got to pay to activate on it and you want to do the best job you can. You want to put your best foot forward with viewers. And there's no better. I mean, if Tom Brady was available and he was willing to do it, you paid to get Tom Brady in that booth. Um, will it go the whole 10 years? I mean, obviously, that's a really long deal. I'm sure I'm sure there's some sort of looking, but it's a really big number. And like Chad alluded to, like he's making more than he made on the field. And the man hasn't ever called a game. We've seen some stuff on the documentary side with Man in the Arena. But that's from his own production company. I want to see what he's like live and unfiltered. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to want to see how he calls the games. All right, Chad, this guy, you know, you this guy lived in your neighborhood for 18, 19 plus years. How do you see? <laughs> it's not my neighborhood, yeah, it's man. It's a fancy neighborhood. <laughs> We're different neighborhoods. But how do you see the, uh, you know, how do you see the brand, amb- we'll use a brand ambassador part of this uh, this deal? How how much of that is a factor in addition to obviously the, uh, the, the game broadcast part? Yeah, client and promotional initiatives. That's pretty open-ended um, as they, they, they put it this morning. Um, He's going to shake hands with the rich people and make the advertisers feel good about advertising with Fox Sports and uh, uh, give these people a story to tell about how they met Tom Brady. He's probably going to be all over Fox branding uh, when when Fox Sports branding when uh, he's actually in the booth. Um, You know, he's uh, you can't really go wrong with him. Uh, he's been uh, arguably the greatest player in NFL history. People in my corner of the country here would say absolutely. Uh, he is uh, someone who, save for the silly deflate gate stuff, really hasn't been in any trouble at all. Uh, been kind of a model citizen. And, you know, that was stupid anyway, um, the the way that all went down. And uh, is, is, is somebody, you know, handsome guy, uh, uh, does all of his high-end uh 
brand product branding and things like that. He has his TB12 and his Brady brand clothing and uh, is uh, his production company and just as prominent in that world. And uh, it, it, it's a great fit for Fox and a huge asset for Fox, whether or not he's ever actually in the broadcast booth, because they can have him out there uh, doing that promotional stuff and enhancing their brand with his image. So uh, for them, you know, it sounds like a ton of money to us, especially for thinking of it from a broadcaster perspective and what you're paying for a color, color analyst. But there's absolutely no way Fox Sports is looking at him as Tom Brady color analyst. It's a uh, Tom Brady, uh, you know, useful uh useful brand for us yeah not to mention you know potential partner and productions and and deals and all sorts of stuff Austin, i want to go to you what we haven't got to yet is like the job itself and unquestionably tom brady knows football as you know at least a quarterback position as well as anyone in in the history of the game in the the moments where we've seen him do sort of for what like be close to sort of analysis like his appearance on the Manning uh, cast and stuff I thought he was pretty good he could be funny he was loose but it's impossible to know you know how he'll be in this position until until he gets there what I'm interested in from you is that the initial tune-in for for Brady I'm not even talking about game one but I'm sort of talking about his first year is going to be massive I also think that in the world that we sort of live in, he's probably going to have to be good pretty fast just because of the the money, Austin. So how do you see it? One, do you have any – I mean, we're not going to know until he's on air, but if you had to take a guess, do you think he'd be good at it? And if so, how good? And then the second thing is my thought is that the pressure on Brady is going to be much higher than Romo or Aikman or any of these other people because that's sort of what the fame and the contract bring to. I mean, is there pressure? I mean, there is a lot of money here at stake, yeah. But he doesn't really need it. I mean, if he if they decide if he's not having a good first couple of years, like you know, uh, they go their separate ways. But he's a competitor, like all these guys are that are fresh, especially the ones that are fresh off the field, like Romo and Breeze. But I think he sees these guys coming into the booth and being successful. And there's a, there's no, just another level of competition for him. As far as what I expect from his performance in the booth, I think the guy does have comedic timing. I, I think he is funny. You see what he started opening up and doing on on social media, like with the tuck rule the other day, I thought that was funny. I, I thought it was funny. So I, I'm interested, I am interested to see how he performs. There is going to be, and like, I don't, I'm trying to think about an analyst who is going to be written about more during those f- first couple of games or even first couple of seasons. And I, I'm not thinking of any comparisons, even when Romo was doing it. So the eye, the spotlight is going to be on him for sure. What about you, Chad? How do you sit? Yeah, I mean the cautionary tale is Breeze, right? Uh, you know, the you know, NBC brought him in, put him in the studio a little bit, uh, gave him a couple of games, and they didn't go well, and he immediately lost his luster. Um, yeah, he was somebody I think they were anticipating would would follow in that uh, that the the Romo footsteps of being a great quarterback, excellent, better quarterback than Romo for sure, who comes off the field and immediately because of that freshness, uh, recent history of the game and ability to articulate what they're seeing uh, would be a good broadcaster right away. And it just, he hasn't done it because he's not willing to be candid and uh, really doesn't, isn't willing to be critical. Um, Those have hurt him. Uh, Brady's a really smart guy and he, is going to be prepared for this and he's going to take the lessons away from the guys who have succeeded 
and the guys who haven't. I don't think he's going to be great right away because it, it's going to take a little bit of time for his candor to come out. He's just so polished and so measured that uh, he, he's he might have a hard time being critical and being pointed initially, but I don't think he'll be avoiding it. I, I The parallel to me is actually kind of Aikman uh, back in you know 2002 and uh, early 2000s when he first started. Uh, he wasn't as, uh, again, same word, candid as he is now. That came out a little bit later, but he was likable. Uh, he was uh, good-natured, and I think Brady will be those things as well. I, I'm I'm also curious to see if, uh, he does the the Nostradamus thing like Romo did before he to- toned it down a little bit. Where uh, I, I always heard, I was always told when from from people who maybe have been a, were a little bit envious of the success Romo had right away that any quarterback could do that. They could sit there and identify what was going to happen. Um, so I'm curious to see if Brady has any of that in his repertoire, how much of that he's willing to share, because this is a guy who's told us uh, he has all the answers to the test. He knows everything that's coming that a defense throws at him these days. So uh, that knowledge, if he can translate to that to the booth, he has a chance to be to, to be pretty good, but I think it'll take a little bit of time. Chad, I want to stay with you. Um, any... Um challenges you think for Fox if the Buccaneers make the Super Bowl this year and that's a Fox Super Bowl and it's Burkhart and Olsen (laughs) calling the game potentially Brady's last game Brady's about to replace Olsen in the booth I we mean we're uh you know we've never uh we've never (laughs) we've never entered uh, that kind of uh like sort of potential interesting little broadcasting world if that happens that would be something else. I can see Olsen having a sense of humor about that. Yeah, that's actually. The way, that would pretty, be the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. He's a pretty funny guy and, and self-deprecating. And, uh, it's, you know, he's would get bumped down to the number two team, which is still a pretty good gig. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I could see them having a sense of humor that I'm actually curious to see if the Bucks get knocked out early this year. If he, uh, even if he hasn't announced his retirement yet, um, whether he ends up being part of that broadcast booth this year, even still as an active player, uh, you know, they could bring him in with Olsen and Burkhart or, or however it shakes out this season um, and, and kind of give him a little bit of a head start there, sort of a, uh, you know, an, an, an introduction as if we don't already know the guy pretty well. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of things in play here as, uh, as the season goes on. Austin, if you are um, Brad Zager and Eric Shanks, do you want as many Bucks games this year? as you can get, or do you, you want the opposite? You don't want, you want, you want Tom to be doing his thing and you don't want to have to navigate that world uh, during this. Uh, business is business. You still want as many bucks game as you can. I don't think they're going to worry about that. I agree. I think that also don't have a sense of humor about it. And, you know, beyond that, I think they're also looking across properties here. Wow. They can use Brady. Something we talked about earlier. He's going to be involved somehow when they have Michigan, Ohio state. You can bring him into the booth potentially. Oh, yeah. yeah. Have a great point. If you want to potentially use Absolutely. him in the spring for a USFL game somehow, that could help. That could help boost interest around that. Yeah. And there's just a lot of other properties. Maybe he comes into the booth for a guest spot on a NASCAR race. I just think Fox, Daytona. Yeah, they have yep. so many properties that they can work around and so many things that they can do across all the Fox sports and entities. It just, it works. And Tom Brady is just one of those guys. Like if it was a Derek Jeter or a LeBron James, like, it doesn't matter what the cost was. You go out and you get him if he wants it. Welcome to uh, the World Cup. Uh, it's Germany and Holland. I'm John Strong with my co-analyst, Tom Brady. Uh, hey, USA, uh, England. Here we go. <laughs> Chad, um, do you think, I mean, 
I think for some of us, like, you know, the, um, the, the, not for some of us, let me sort of rephrase that Romo's contract reset the market when it came to all Mm -hmm. this stuff, obviously Troy Aikman, uh, you know, it was important. I think, you know, whether for Troy or just, you know, whether for ESPN to, you know, to match or to top that salary. Now Brady just has sent this into a different stratosphere. My thought on all this would be that it's not going to have any impact on the rest of sports broadcasting. Like if you're, I don't want to use a specific name here, but if you're sports center anchor X, right. And you're walking in to renegotiate with, uh, you know, Norby Williamson and uh, Pitaro or uh, Dave Roberts, like <laughs> you're not citing any of this crazy money to me, uh, when it comes to your deal. I feel like this is very specific to Brady and maybe, I don't know, if LeBron James ever wanted to be an analyst for Turner or something. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can't even think of what the possible equivalent would be. This just feels like there's no apples to apples comparison here. This is just apples and that's it. Yeah, I mean, Manning is the interesting one because yes. he's, he's basically drawn up what he wants to do. Um, you know, it's his Omaha Productions company that uh, uh, heads up all this with the deal with ESPN. Uh, I don't know what he's making. Do you? Do you know what he gets? What what they make out of that? No, it hasn't been. Uh, yeah. yeah, like you know, I've tried to sort of figure out what the production deal money is, and I haven't been able to so find it. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not even sure Marshand has found it. So, <laughs> well, if, uh, yes. yeah. So that's a that's a that's one we'd all like to know. I do know again that when I when I talk to again people who negotiate these deals, uh, you know agents from from very big places you know when i asked them like all right what could peyton in theory get in the open market and like they they were talking and this was now maybe we're talking like two years ago at this point they were they were in the 20 millions at that point so like i would just think again i don't know what peyton manning's deal is i don't know when it's up but if you want let's just if we want to just play this game although everybody now has their analyst like he manning would be the one guy i think who could get comparable money to brady that's it subset yeah, of one no I agree with that. And you, I mean, you know, everybody was after him forever for that yep. before he kind of, yeah, I don't think he wants to do it or he would have done it already. Right. Right. Yeah. He designed the gig that he wanted more or less. And I think he's got a better gig than Tom Brady. No disrespect to Brady there, but to me, like the Mannings have set up the ultimate gig. They get to, you know, watch the game with each other. They get to control the production. They get to have fun. They get to have bring uh, guests in for it, which is great networking for them. Um, Austin, let me sort of finish up uh, with you on this viewership, which is pretty interesting to me. I think me, you, and Chad have been in this long enough to know that the reality is the game ultimately is what draws the audience. And while how you process the game and the production of the game is really important and really important financially, generally speaking, sort of like a broadcaster is not going to bring in any additional eyeballs, maybe short of Charles Barkley with Inside the NBA. That said, we may find the rare kind of, uh, you know, the rare caveat to, to to this sort of thesis in that I think it's a fair argument, certainly the first week and maybe the first three weeks of Brady's run, whenever and if that happens, I think there's going to be additional tune-in because I think people are going to be curious about about him as a broadcaster. What do you think? I agree. Um, but what does Fox have in week one? Do they have a national window? Do they have a, a single header? So they'll, don't you think they will set it up where it's the biggest 425 I, yeah. game? Is this, I think week one, something to that effect? Yeah, week one, you're going to get a 425 game, roll them out with that high profile window, which, like you said, was going to do a big number in week one regardless. 
I, I want to see what the week two single header does. Do people continue to watch him? Is it some sort of Fox record for a single header window? Great question. So I think there is going to be a really great initial tune in. And eventually he'll just become another announcer. Uh, I know it's Tom Brady, but, you know, Troy Aikman's a Hall of Famer, too. Tony, Ram- Tony Romo is a great quarterback. Drew Brees, Hall of Famer. So eventually yep. he will just, you know, fold into the mix of the NFL landscape. But at first, yeah, Very true. there's going to be that, that real initial interest. That's a great point by Austin, Chad, in that, like, the reality is as sexy as this is today and as newsworthy and it's massively newsworthy, you know, one, two, three, four years, you're just, you're part of the landscape. It, it's still cool that you're doing the game, and I think people still get excited if Romo's doing a game, but you do become part of the, of the, of the sort of the structure, you know what I'm saying? Like, that first year, it's very, very different, and there's always another sort of star coming around the corner, maybe not at the Brady level, but, but there'll be other great candidates in broadcasting. But I do think that first, you know, week two or three, um, it's going to be really, really big viewership. And I think if somehow like he was doing the Patriots, I mean, I would add a couple million <laughs> maybe on that. Uh, that would be something else. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that window. I think it's the first couple of weeks and then it settles down. Um, the interesting thing to me is whether he's got some sort of travel restrictions or, or guidelines in this where um, – you know, he doesn't uh, know. I guess he's in Florida most of the time now, but they have a place in New York, too. He's never up here anymore um, where he, you know, he would kind of do games nearby because one of the, you know, the big reason he cited when he retired for 40 days was that he wanted to be around his family more. And I, I would bet he's got some parameters on this. All right. Last one, Chad. I'll start with you and then I'll let you finish, Austin. Um if you had to get, let's say, let's make the presumption that Tom Brady retires after this season. Okay, that's probably not a great bet, but you know, because it's Tom Brady and he never sort of does what you expect. But let's just use that for the sake of this, uh, of the sake of this exercise. So Brady retires after this year, and he's in the booth starting in 2023. So here's my question to you, Chad: Will Tom Brady be a Fox broadcaster in 2029? Will he be a game analyst six years into the deal? Yes or no? Oh boy. Uh, I would say no. He's got so much other else going on. I, I, I would, uh, I'll put a five-year cap on it for now. Austin, I agree. I don't see it in six years. I see him uh, seeing a bright, shiny object and going chasing that. Uh, <laughs> we are in agreement here. I am with both of you guys, and I'm saying I put the five-year on it too. I, if he does it, God bless him. And I, you know, if we're doing this podcast six years from now, you guys will come on. We'll be a culpa it, but I'm with you. I don't. I don't think it goes ten. I would be stunned if that happens. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm never bet against Tom Brady. I guess. I mean, everybody's sort of learned that. All right, listen, Chad and Austin, thank you for uh, for coming on. We taped the last. We're going to head towards the F1, which, uh, by the way, let me just update people because we we taped it before this came out. But the F1 averaged two point six million viewers on ABC, largest U.S. audience ever for a live F1 telecast. So an incredible weekend for F1. And that is where we're going to pick up on this conversation. But I want to chat and, and Austin to pop on uh, so we can do some Brady. So next, it's F1. And as always, a crappy segue by me. F1, how the world has changed. All right, we're taping this on um, Monday. So right after the uh, the F1 race in Miami. And by the way, my God, if I, you know what? I'm enough with the celebrities. We know you're jumping on the F1 bandwagon. We know it's Miami. We know it's the place to be for the moment, but my God, uh, if I'd never see another celebrity in an F1 pit, again, I'm happy. 
I know it had that Monaco it feel, did. man. It really did. It's it's just it's everything I I truly love about the world. You know, uh, just wealth, <laughs> just horrible rich people walking around like they own the place. It's 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 uh, F one's interesting, but man, it's. Uh, it's you know it's sort of it's also it's maybe the best and worst of everything. All right, anyway, enough societal uh, enough societal comments by me. This isn't a culture war podcast, Chad. Calm down. Yes, it is. Oh, wait a minute, of course it, is, it is. is. Everything's a culture war. That's what it always podcast. is. I apologize. <laughs> How dare I? All right, so Austin, <laughs> I want to start with you as sort of the viewership ex- expert. So. <sighs> F1's story has been written about. It is an absolute success story. Uh, you can give me the exact numbers, but ESPN's exponential growth here in terms of these races is unbelievable. Anecdotally, the sport is absolutely on fire in the U.S. I, I can't obviously like give you an exact formula as to like how much drive to survive is responsible, but I feel like anecdotally, like that answer's already been given, and the answer's a lot. And so, um, again, Austin, we're not talking NFL numbers, you know, we're, we're not, we're not even talking NBA, you know, postseason, uh, you know, conference championship numbers, but from, it's just, it's a great, great story. And it seemed like this weekend in particular, and we haven't seen the ABC numbers yet from the Miami Grand Prix, but man, it just seemed like there was this like, like represented the moment for F1 in America. So I am fascinated to see these numbers when they come out. Uh, give us some perspective on like where F1 is right now in terms of sort of viewership interest and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's huge. Just talking about like the interest levels, I'm comparing this past week coming into the Miami Grand Prix. It was like we were paying attention to a Super Bowl. It had that sort of buildup. It had that sort of media attention, you know, from everybody, from the New York Times to the local papers. ESPN, obviously, being the rights holder, was all over it. But they're having a moment. It's their moment. It's, you know, they're having their crescendo moment as far as audience numbers in the U.S. I mean, last season was their best ever. And we talked about this last year, how, oh, the, the impact of Drive to Survive. And that's real. Now, I think the New York Times wrote about it this weekend, and I totally agree. It is beyond anecdotal at this point. Like, there is, that is the driving force for interest in this country. That documentary has done so much good for that series. So, I thought, but I thought coming into the 2022 season, all right, maybe you'll see a small downtick because you had to come to earth a little bit because you were talking about an increase 30, 40%. Right. No, blew it right out of the water. They're, go- they're up like 40, 50% already to start this season. And what do they do with the inaugural Miami Grand Prix? They take an NBA game that would have been in that window on the Sunday afternoon on ABC. And like, no, we're going to move it to Saturday because we want to give it that much exposure. We're going to put the F1 race on ABC. We're going to give it an hour and a half pre-race on ABC just to build it up with all the hype. And it delivered. The, ra- the You know, I-, I watched most of the race and I thought it was a good telecast and they looked good on TV. And, you know, there were some corny stuff where the Sky Sports announcers talked about Dan Marino and Ace Ventura at the end. But, you know, beyond that, I, I thought it was well done. And can they continue it? I mean, Netflix is signed on for a couple more years now for Drive to Survive, and they're going to get paid big time, Liberty Media here. I think ESPN is dishing out around $5 million a yep. year for the rights to F1. That I think John Oran reported their F1 is in the market looking for closer to $75 million a year. So the, the Liberty's going to get paid very yeah, nicely. I mean, you know, I, I read that Oran piece, and he's, he's, you know, he's always on the ball when it comes to uh, – 
what people are talking about for sports rights fees. And, you know, there was sort of an expectation in the market, like, all right, F1 can sort of dream this, but it's not possible. But like, from what I saw this weekend, my, my mindset is starting to shift. Like maybe they should sort of reach for the moon here with that kind of number, 75 million. And maybe the number's 50 million at the end of the day. All right, Chad, I want to get to you on this. Austin, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe heading into this race, um, F1 was averaging 1.1 million viewers uh, on average for their 2022 season. This is obviously, this race will be on ABC, so it'll be really interesting mm-hmm. to see um, you know, what this race does because obviously it's getting a, a pretty prime mm-hmm. spot on over-the-air television on a Sunday. Uh, Chad, the thing to me is that um, you know I always find interesting when it comes to this stuff is not only has ESPN given it obviously a better uh, a better um, window programming window given the U.S. race, but they're like they're like I, I don't know if it led with it, but it, like the the F one was very high in like one of the Sports Center um, rundowns that I saw. They have uh, they have on site presence of Sports Center. Good Morning America was there. Marnie and McGee was there. So. You know, you kind of like can always sort of read the tea leaves. Read the tea leaves is the wrong expression. You kind of, I take that back. You know exactly when ESPN is promoting a property when they send their armada of resources for a property. And I feel like for F1, like again, as sort of Austin said, this was a moment, man. They, I'm not saying they staffed it up like a Super Bowl, but Jesus Christ, they staffed it up pretty big. <laughs> They did, yeah. I saw that too. It was uh, right after some NBA stuff uh, where they got into it, which, you know, a year ago, two years ago for sure. Where do they mention it in the show? <laughs> they don't. Uh, 40 minutes in? I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, they don't. It's probably the right answer. I, it's really interesting, though, because this feels um, organic in a lot yeah. of ways. You know, I can't think of another TV show that has had such an influence that a sport becomes more pop, a hugely popular worldwide sport becomes popular in the United States where we don't like anything new generally or anything that comes from another country that's, um, you know, huge there. We, we have our baseball, basketball, you know, football, a little bit of hockey, auto racing, and tend to stick with uh, soccer to some degree, but uh, tend to stick with the things that have always been popular. It, to see something ascend like this and then... Uh, to see how it happened with this show becoming uh, a, a real conversation piece on social media where you saw influential sports media people talking about it, not because they were paid to, but because it caught their attention. And you, you listen to like uh, uh, the Ringer podcast when Simmons and Russell are usually talking about the NBA MVP race or the NFL games or whatever their usual topics, they would get into this like uh, they were really deeply into it and you saw me times talking about it on twitter people like that and um just stuff like that doesn't happen authentically that often i i really can't think of another example where something like this is taken off in this particular awesome. way you know again this happens and, and i'm not even saying like it 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 wouldn't necessarily happen at a you know a quote-unquote, like, you know, legacy journalism place, because I worked at Sports Illustrated. And when the swimsuit issue came out, swimsuit was the lead story on SI.com. Now, it wasn't necessarily the lead story every day, but it was. But I got to be honest with it. It, it, like, it makes me laugh just in terms of the commercialization of 
uh, of all the stuff when ESPN puts like F1 very high in uh, its Sports Center, um, its Sports Center sort of rundown. It's the same way like ESPN PR used to just be bullshitting everybody about we don't short shrift hockey, right? You now have hockey. I now see it all the time all over your network. Fox, by the way. Find it on the menu on ESPN.com. Good luck. In in many ways, Fox Sports is sort of more honest with all this nonsense in that, like, again, this is like one of my favorite bits now. I'm I'm on Fox Sports' website, okay? Um, The third story on their panel is NASCAR. The fifth story is USFL odds week four. Uh, and the sixth story is WrestleMania backlash. So, like, they're not even pretending. Like, what is the lead story in sports or the most important sport sports story of the day? ESPN, to its credit, certainly on .dot com, um, you know, I think still uh, sort of represents or reflects like what's going on. I think that you know the Boston Globe does today. Hopefully, the Athletic does. But like, it's very funny to me, Austin, that the what has always sort of been a not so dirty little secret is that if you own the rights to this stuff, you're going to push it much harder. I think it's just so much more overt now. And again, I, like I, it's cool. Like I think F1's a very exciting cool sport, but it is funny to me that like, you know, on a on a US Miami sort of F1 weekend, ES, ESPN has deemed this, mm-hmm. you know, the most important story for their flagship uh, sports news program. I mean, they're also trying to sell themselves I absolutely suppose, as as a media partner. Like we want to stick with you. We're going to give you as much Great love point. as possible right now. We're sending Nicole Briscoe down. And, you know, like you talk about the gaudiness of it. She was talking about it on SportsCenter. On yeah. Saturday. Although she's, she's got like, real auto racing <laughs> uh, bona fides. Exactly. She's got chops. Yeah. 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 That, that was actually good. Yeah. I like and her. And I think that was a smart move by mm-hmm. them to use her as opposed to oh. let's have somebody who's, who has no auto racing background parachute into this. She is one of my sports center ESPN all time favorites. She's hilarious, but you know, she was talking about like, I went to the F1 shop and I just paid $70 for a hat. <laughs> this is not for your common U S sports no. fan. This is a different, different, completely different animal, but like Chad, you and Richard alluded to it. Like it was 11 minutes in or something like that into the sports center yeah. where the results of the race came on. Uh, and right after NBA, it's like, all right, you know, this, this even got ahead of hockey, which is another ESPN property now. And that's in the playoffs. This is, on, you know, the fifth race of the season. Uh, so, yeah, it was the inaugural one. But yeah, talking to ESPN last year, whenever you would get the numbers, it was always like, because you would want to talk to them, but like, you know, what do you all think that the impact is of Drive to Survive? And they're always so hesitant. Yeah, because they, they want, they, they I mean, I understand it. They want the credit or the first yeah. credit. I, I have no offense to ESPN. And again, I've said this before. It was one of the, Burke Magnus uh, should get a race for this. One of the great, um, rights deals that ESPN has done. Mm-hmm. But the reason, you know, I know Robert Seidman of Sports TV Ratings listening, he doesn't like, he doesn't like this when you make this correlation. The reason for the eruption of this sport in the United States is because people found this show on Netflix during the pandemic. Like, that's it. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry to, I wish I had a spreadsheet and I wish I was smarter when it came to data. But, like, I don't feel like that's a stretch to say. Like, that's the cause and effect on this. And so yeah. um, they ca- they caught lightning in a bottle, and good for them. Like, you know what? ESPN was in the position to catch the lightning in the bottle. And so they took the chance on it. Liberty Media's done an amazing job of sort of rebranding this. Um, Chad, I guess I'll ask you this, and then we'll move on to another thing. Is What I don't know is, is this sustaining long-term? Like, I, I have, you know, I've traveled to Europe – and I certainly have European sort of friends or whatever, or, or uh, uh, 
you know, acquaintances, they are so into F1. Like, they talk about F1 the way people in this country talk about fantasy football. So, like, I get, like, in certain parts of the world, like, this is major. I just, I don't know. Like, I, I, I really wish I had a better feel for whether this is just a moment or whether this will last. Do you have a sense? No, because we haven't really had anything like it, right? I was trying to think of a comparable and uh, with something already established worldwide got buzzed like this here and um, whether it's sustained or whether it faded out. I mean, I, again, I guess probably the, the closest comparison is soccer, but it's really not yeah. a comparison at all. It's Apple. Yeah, it hasn't hit here. Yet. Yeah, not it, it's not the same thing, but um, I tend to think it is. Uh, I mean, you, you described it exactly as it was, Richard, that this show caught on because people – like the got into the personalities right. and the soap opera aspect of it and the drama and the actually watching the sport came out of already knowing who the people were. Exactly. And I think that only builds up I, I, as they get to know more of the personalities from not specifically from the show, but from also being fans who actually watch the races. Now, I think it probably sticks. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it'll have the buzz that it does right now, permanently but i i I think the growth is real it has some advantages austin like it's a once a week sport like cool looking too yeah very i mean if you're into the qualifying and stuff okay it's a three day a week sport but like the race itself is a once a week sport it's um it's not a five hour commitment it's it's sort of a, a a reasonable window and i think chad hit on something too like there is a coolness factor to it like these drivers are world famous um they're exotic in many ways, like the sport, because it's it's sort of different countries. Mm-hmm. You know, the cars look cool if you're sort of just like visually into that. Like I happen to like NASCAR. I actually think it's a cool sport to watch, but um but it but also like, you know, NASCAR's longer. It it seems like there are more sort of rules to sort of navigate than F one. So um Again, I don't know if it's if it's a moment or something long lasting. I do think F one though has some advantages though, and and the you know the once a week sort of programming window thing I yeah. think helps. Scarcity. That's what makes the NFL so popular, and it has that versus in this country. Why, especially while you may see further growth, and I don't know where the ceiling is, is because of that scarcity. It's not as many races as NASCAR, and it's seen as you know the major league to the minor league being F uh, IndyCar. So it has that sort of feel to it. Like it's, it's the creme de la creme, but you know, while there may not be a corollary to a, like a a global sport like this coming into us airwaves and seeing this sort of growth there, I, I, what I'm paying attention to is going back and seeing the growth that NASCAR went through 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like, all right, looking at that bell curve, like how high can it go and when is it going to start to come back to earth? So I think that's something that everyone now has, some precedent to look for, to look at into, into the numbers that way. Like, all right, where, where is this going to go? What is out of control growth and where is it actually going to settle? Because that's really important right now because there's media rights negotiations going on. All right. So when Netflix takes over this entire package, including, uh, um, airing all the races and stuff, it's going to be hilarious when ESPN ever uh, puts it on sports center again. So there you go. All right, let's move on to the, this is Chad's neck of the woods. The de- debut of NBC slash Peacock's MLB Sunday leadoff happened this Sunday. Red Sox and White Sox, they got themselves a good game. Um, I really liked what I saw. The, uh, I, you know, I love Jason Benetti. I think 
to me, if I was staffing ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, he would have been my pick. Although I happen to like this booth now, actually. I like Ravich, uh, Cohen, and Perez. I think they found something. But Benetti, to me, would have been the pick I would have made. I would have picked him before Vascursion as well. So they've already got me in terms of I really like the play-by-play broadcaster. I love the idea of using local analysts, as they did with Steve Stone and Kevin Euclid. The look of that thing was good. So as a baseball watcher, man, they just they gave me what I wanted. They gave me a quality booth, a quality production, and even I like the fact that they got like a, a, a different game time, like eleven thirty a.m. is just kind of kind of interesting to me. So I, to me, I thought it was an absolute huge winner um, for first out of the box. So I'll start with you, Chad, since this was in your neck of the woods. How'd you see it? Yeah, I, I saw it the same way. I'd love to argue with you, but I, I thought it was great in a bunch of different ways. Um, the morning thing appeals up here in Boston because we have the, the Patriots uh, day game uh, uh, with the marathon every year. So it's already kind of a tradition here that, uh, you know, people like their their early, early afternoon baseball, late morning baseball. Um, they kind of eased Benetti into it. I thought it was wise. You know, Steve Stone's his usual partner on uh, – uh, on the White Sox, uh, NBC, yep. NBC Chicago broadcast, yeah, and then Euclid played a half a season for the White Sox, so they they knew each other as well. So it wasn't like they were putting him in there with uh, you know an ex Philly and an ex uh, uh, you know Cardinal or something like that that he didn't know, which was wise. But in terms of the whole broadcast, I love that they they really found a good balance right away of like the retro. And then uh, sort of some modern stuff. I mean, having Vin Scully at the top do the introduction, uh, real callback to the the, the 80s when you you had the Saturday game of the week, uh, him and Joe Garagiola on the first broadcast, Jamin Costas and Kubek on the second, uh, which a lot of people of a certain generation think of as the heyday of television baseball coverage. So um, they did a really nice job with that, some retro graphics and, uh, but the, you know, you also had analytics stuff in there and, uh, Benetti's uh, Benetti is uh, just the perfect choice because he can speak that language, the analytic language. He was on that broadcast on ESPN with, uh, you know, Eduardo Perez and and uh, uh, the Statcast broadcast, yep. and uh, very good at that. But he's also a conventional play-by-play guy. You could hear, hear he sounds like somebody would have called games in uh, you know 1960s as well. So, uh, great decision to hire him, and the broadcast was. Um, terrific for 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 uh, debut. What about you, Chad? I don't know if you happen to see the broadcast, but uh, if not, conceptually, what do you think? Unless there's a third chat on here, I'm going to go ahead and take this one. <laughs> or a second chat, excuse me. Nobody wants that. <laughs> uh, you know, for everything, I, I I signed on the Peacock just for a little bit to check it out. Didn't stay for the whole game, but it was a nice, like you said, very nice touch putting Vin on at the beginning. There was obviously a lot of, you know, some Peacock crossover there interviewing, what, Sasha Banks from the WWE while she was in the stands. That's obviously a big property on Peacock, trying to get that there. If you were a White Sox fan, I think a lot of the graphics on the telecast matched up to the RSN graphics, so you had that sort of similar look and feel. And it was well done. NBC does great production. And from what I'm reading and seeing, it was an incredibly more positive response compared to what Apple TV did. My thing is just looking at the grand scope of things, especially this season. A, you want to give baseball the credit for experimenting. And I do. And that's great. But now it's almost like college football. It's like, where, where's, where's my game this, this weekend? I don't, is, it on, is it on YouTube? Is it on Apple? Is it on NBC? ESPN, Turner, and RSN? 
it, it, there's a the menu is getting really really big and you're having to pay potentially a lot of bills to have all these places where your game might air listen uh, you you to me you were actually and Chatham you can sort of weigh in on this too you were being actually too kind Austin experimentation is great I think uh, in terms of that I think baseball is certainly ahead of the curve in terms of using their streaming partners to sort of see interesting things they can do. But writ large, this is the most anti-fan, anti-consumer major sport that exists out there, given what they are asking their fans to do in terms of if you want to see every game uh, that your team plays. They, they They are squeezing you for every last dollar, and they have made it, they have actually made it hard for you to figure out where your team is. They're not going to change this. MLB's made its decision. Uh, they're willing to risk any kind of blowback, and they're willing to risk any kind of growth in terms of keeping their their sport sort of in one place in exchange for this, Chad. But, you know, I, all these decisions to me, I, yeah, maybe 30% of it is experimentation or to sort of get your streaming future, but I feel like 70% of it is is just MLB was taking as much money as they could from 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 the outlets that were interested in in these different packages. Yeah, well, it's kind of been the Manfred approach: is get your money now and uh, forget about how this makes people feel about the game in the long term. Uh, it goes to the, the 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 game itself as well as the broadcast. But as someone who spent a good part of Friday uh, answering email after email about uh, where I can watch Friday night's game because the Red Sox are on Apple TV Plus that night, and then. Sunday on Peacock. Um, there's a lot of frustrated people out there. I can tell you that uh, you know pay their money for Nesson and or whatever your regional uh, sports network is, and uh, uh, you know that significant chunk that's on your cable bill or whatever you pay for streaming. And then you have to go hunting around on Friday night for the game because uh, uh, you know MLB has sold it out to somebody else. It's uh, uh, it's not it, it, it's not appealing to younger people, and it's not appealing to the uh, you know the 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 long term fans here are getting more and more frustrated with the circumstances around those broadcast rights. If only they took all of these outlets and put them in some sort of bundle together, <laughs> I think that, that would be incredibly popular. You may, have, uh, you may be on to like a revolutionary idea there, Austin. I'm not I sure know, right? Done before. <laughs> all right, let's get to the Kentucky Derby, and then we'll I mean get to the headliner of this podcast: Flora Kelly versus Mike Mulville. Um So the Derby's prelim numbers that uh you know pr extraordinaire dan masonson dropped uh on us on uh sunday was 16 million across nbc and peacock so that's the prelim number the i would assume austin i mean you again i see to you here as the expert my guess is that may tick up a little bit when sort of all is said and done i don't even know if that's considering outside uh no i don't think it is that's not ooh right now right that's not outside the home number so the, the number mm-hmm. will be better the the number based on and thank you John Lewis as always of Sports Media Watch for keeping all this data, you know that sixteen million mark Austin is a good Derby number like that's that's in the high since NBC had this in the two thousands, you know that's going to be on the high side. Yeah, they're getting some Peacock additional viewers. No, it's not apples to apples, but I feel like that um, they got to be happy with that. They got this dream, obviously, this incredible finish, which I think now makes the Preakness. Like of massive interest if Rich Strike ends up running in the Preakness, they got a once in a lifetime kind of finish. So if I guess if you're NBC Austin, you got to be psyched. You know the Derby's back in its normal part on the calendar. 
the viewership numbers up. I don't know. NBC to me had a great day. That's how I sort of looked at it. I see it as a win for NBC. Like you said, I don't think there was that so much talked about horse coming in. Like there was such of an upset, but yet now you have that underdog story who's going to get more coverage headed into the Preakness. Like you said, the number, even, even at the preliminary number of 16 million viewers, A, that's right in the wheelhouse of what NBC was paying for with this media rights deal or above what the average of maybe they expected. And that's where do you find a place to aggregate 16 million Americans these days on a media outlet? Like, good luck. So, yeah, it's one of the the premier properties on all of television, entertainment, sports, whatever you want to call it. So I see it as a big win for NBC, all of its networks, because they do so much shoulder programming. They get so many female viewers. I think more females may watch the Kentucky Derby. It's one of the few major events that uh, more females watch than males. Yeah, so I I see it as a big win for them. Chad, uh, I'd love to get your take, but I mean, also, I think, don't we have to factor in that the reason that people are watching the Derby again is because the horses have decided not to do social justice messaging like throughout the race. (laughs) Isn't that part of it? didn't see any horses kneeling, no. Yeah, uh, okay. So how have you seen it, Chad? Because again, like Austin, like, I don't know, to me, you get 16 million Americans if you're NBC, man. That's a great number. I think it sort of revitalizes the Derby a little bit. And then um, yeah, a little, a little uh, uh, PR push here for me. Uh, the podcast before you guys is Larry Colmas. Um, oh, nice. So we talked about the race. And so uh, Rich Strike is the story. Won't be the only story, but that is the story of the race. And just your average casual sports fan can identify with like an 80 to 1 long shot winning the Kentucky Derby. That's like everybody's dream. Yeah, I mean uh, that was wasn't that your first thought? When you, I wish I'd put uh, exactly. X amount of money down on just just for the heck of it, you know, ten bucks or whatever you got. But yeah, oh, absolutely. It was. Uh, I'd be curious to see the uh, the numbers and the build up to it, you know, uh, before the race starts and and what they get, uh, you know, over those, you know, the hour or two before the race. Yeah. Because Ch- uh, also, do you know, like, is the does the race peak? Like, would the race be over sixteen million? And the lead up is like. 12, 13, 14 million. How, do you know how that usually works? It'll be way less than that. They break it out as like 2.30 to 6 o'clock, and then the race segment is what we get the number for. That's like 6 to 7.05, and you know, traditionally has been leading into an NHL playoff game the last couple of years, but didn't have that lead in as well. So that's also something to consider. Yeah. Uh, Chad, I, I mean, again, like I, I don't have the Preakness data in front of me. I do know the Preakness usually rates a little bit lower than – the Derby, obviously, but so I'm going to really just be fascinated by this because, again, I think I just think you're I, I think casual sports fans by the time the Preakness runs will have heard of Rich Strike just because of this fluke win. I shouldn't say fluke, maybe it's a super horse, just because of this very historic win in the Derby. Well, the replay of it is everywhere. I exactly. mean, you, you, it's not just like going on Twitter or something, you see it on uh, saw it on Good Morning America this morning. Where you you get that overhead view where uh, you know he comes out of nowhere and it's the accelerator, you know, right when they're starting to get down the stretch. So um, that sort of thing is just kind of carrying that uh, carrying that uh, attention after the race that you don't usually get. Where such an improbable story and just uh, how he pulled it off uh, is is uh, is going to stand people's consciousness for a while heading into you know second leg of the triple crown. 
All right, Austin, we talked F1. Now we're talking USFL. I mean, I never would have expected to do these two topics uh, big on uh, on you know on a, on a, on a on a second week of May podcast, but here we are. So, from your perspective as someone who marinates and lives in data and viewership, where is the USFL right now and where is it regarding what you expected it to be? It's a, it's pretty much where I expected it to be. You had a huge number for the first debut game. Granted, that was also a simulcast on Fox and NBC. And then it kind of tapered off a lot in week two, but it kind of has found its place. Like, you know, you, you air four games over the weekend, you put two on broadcast TV, averaging around a million viewers for four games over the weekend. That's that's a solid property. That is a property that's going to get media rights upticks. You look at some of the stuff that is that airs on broadcast TV in the spring, whether it's, you know, like a Premier League game, those are rarely getting you know, around a million viewers, or it's closer to what, uh, like a, a lower rated third round of the PGA tour might get. Um, it's a solid property. It's doing well. It's, there's room for spring. There was always room for spring football in terms of the numbers like that. These numbers are not where I'm a little concerned is these numbers are not what the XFL had when it was back uh, before the pandemic, that was a little higher. And you also are going to have the XFL coming back next season. So what does spring football look like when there's competition? Can it maintain those numbers? And is there any sort of potential future merger between these two operations? I don't think, I don't think both survive. It's tough enough for one to survive, but it does show that there is an appetite for some spring football. Chad, uh, where do you lie on this? I, I'm listen, I, I hope the league survived because I like seeing people have jobs and, I certainly wouldn't root against it. I'm not one who's a big believer in spring football long-term. I, I think, to me, the past has proven that the appetite isn't there. That said, Austin makes a pretty good case. Like, okay, if these sort of numbers are stable, you know, there's a there's a meteorite still here for this property. How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, they have to be modest about expectations. You know, uh, it's not going to make the same mistakes that the original USFL did, which was... Uh, uh, you know, one person in particular going out and spending uh, uh, millions and millions of dollars to bring in college stars. And it, they, the, the league just couldn't survive that, uh, you know, didn't have the funding to survive that. Um, they have to be pretty budget conscious. They have to be very conscious in terms of uh, what the payrolls of the teams are. Uh, I'm skeptical that it survives just because we've seen so many fail, but uh, I, I think the one way it, uh, a league like this works is if they actually have that affiliation with the NFL where they end up as sort of a farm system. But the NFL has never really given any indication that they want something along those lines. Um, uh, and, you know, you, it, it, sending players down to play in a, a spring league is probably not something a lot of teams would want to do either. But I, I, I feel like that is about the only way that it survives uh, what you were talking about before though richard um i just checked out the fox uh, website and they had the the uh breakers game jonathan abrams snags last get pass for breakers number two thing on the site you don't get an nba game until number eight with the sixers the eighth story of the sixers uh heat game last night which is just hilarious it's uh yeah they're not they're not even pretending i mean in, in a way i sort of admire not admire is not the right word kind of a corporate I, thing with them it's not yeah, yeah at least they, they, they sort of acknowledge they're not <laughs> trying to be anything else all right so this gets us into austin this is i mean this th like this this segment should be sponsored by like you know some real inside baseball uh so advertisers so two of the the two research gurus at fox and espn you know the research jedi strategy jedi's research Laura kelly jedis. 
who's an ESPNer, and Mike Mulvihill, who is a who's a Fox Sports. You know, they, they these two both have massive titles. I think we we like both of them. Uh, uh, so they um, they went back and forth on Twitter about uh, you know sort of comparisons, and Mulvihill is obviously pushing the USFL um, against. Uh, against hockey, right, against the NHL and saying it's beating it. So here's a couple things, Austin. Here's from just from my perspective. And we're just really just joking. I mean, nobody outside the business sort of, you know, is going to know. Tear them apart, Richard. Yeah, nobody's going to know <laughs> sort of Flora and Mike unless you're deep in the business. And if you're deep in the business, you obviously have great respect for their for their work. But, man, it shows me, Austin, that Fox is, Fox is really all in on Icy. this. And they're, they really are, um, how do I sort of say this? Like, uh, insecure is not the right word, but, but they're really pushing hard to get the narrative out there that the USFL is doing well, right? And mm-hmm. the USFL matters, and it's not a joke. There's a guy, Edward Hartman, who I think, uh, but by the way, all this forced me to at least research back on Twitter. I'm, I'm so angry at everybody because I had to go back and sort of look at this. Uh, because, of course, Twitter just provokes anger and hatred. Um, so, you know, this guy, Edward Hartman, who is, a, I believe, a VP, an, an EVP of the USFL, but he's also an SVP at Fox Sports. And, you know, he's putting out stuff like, you know, uh, nobody's hearing from, you know, he's retweeting stuff about nobody's hearing from the USFL haters anymore and, you know, here's Colin Coward and real Skip Bayless talking about Fox, and he's retweeting Bulvahill stuff. So Fox has a lot of money on the line here. And this all relates back to Austin. What, you know, we're sort of joking about here is that's why we're seeing it on FoxSports.com. That's why we're seeing the Cowherds of the world and the Baylesses of the world uh, talk about this because Fox is using all its shoulder programming and stuff to push the USFL. It is not based on news value, it is not based on what the most important sports are in the country. It's a pure sort of marketing play. Um, and that's been interesting to me. I, I'm not saying Fox hasn't done this for other stuff, but it just, I don't know, it feels it feels like they're doing it more here. Or am I just so in the no, weeds it's because here that I'm, that I'm overvaluing party. it? They're not just yeah. slapping the, the games on their networks. Like, they're financially invested in the future of this league, you know, as a potential prop, you know, a potential property owner. I guess an equivalent could be something like, seeing the X Games on the cover of ESPN and the Mag. Yeah, right. Or ESPN's co- all the college yeah. football bowls that they own, right? They own them because they own half the bowl games and they own the X yep. Games. So they have a vested financial stake in making sure that succeeds. Uh, so, of course, they're going to put out the best numbers possible. And, I, you know, you, getting back to the, I guess, the original question here in Flora versus Mike, who are two people that yeah. I, I... I did not... I, was just, I opened this... I, I segued this terribly. Nah, really nah, terrible nah. job as me as a host. I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, like seeing them on Twitter, it's just it just goes to show you that you know everyone likes to say numbers don't lie. Uh, I have they may not lie, but you can spin them seven million different ways. <laughs> yes, you can. That's and, the full quote right there. That's, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, which well, I, yeah, I mean, like, and again, uh, how do I sort of say this without? I'll just say it. Fuck it. Here's the reality, and I, I Chad can back me up on this. Um, Austin can back me up on this too. The reality is, for a long time, uh, certainly as long as I've been writing about this stuff, it goes back to people who were writing this stuff before Chad, me, and Austin. The PR departments that compete against each other are always forwarding um, viewership information for their competitors that do not make their competitors look good. Um, 
that's just the reality of how this game works. Some departments are more active than others. Quite frankly, some departments are better than others. Uh, but that's where Twitter, Austin, sort of has changed the game in that the, the Jedis who are always behind the scenes, who would feed this stuff to PR, mm-hmm. now you see it like, you know what I mean? Now it's public. Now you know who the who Oz is behind the curtain, which yes. I at least enjoy. Uh, I, I personally enjoy that, even though I am not on Twitter at the moment. For all sorts of various reasons, everybody gets a voice on Twitter, and that is sometimes good and sometimes not so good. <laughs> uh all right, Chad, is there anything else that uh, that we need to add? Is, I mean, this Inside Baseball segment is sponsored by Valvoline or someone like that. I, I, well, my, just the one thing. I, I don't know how they expect it to catch on to a huge degree beyond being sort of this minor appealing thing when there's not a ton else to go on for football fans because you're never going to have real star power. The best guys in this league are uh, what – backup quarterbacks in the NFL or kickers. Yeah. Right. 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 So, um, you know, the players that you uh, become appealing, you, you have that knowledge, uh, and not even in the back of your head that, uh, they're not close to being the, the, the best at their particular sport. And, um, you know, that star power is such a thing that drives the NFL, the USFL just can't really ever have that. I think the, yeah. uh, I'd say the biggest spring football moment I can remember so far wasn't even from them. It was from fan-controlled football when you had Johnny Manziel throwing a T.O. That's what I remember about spring football so far. (laughs) You know, Austin, here's the one thing I'll – and then we'll just finish up on a quick tennis note here. Um, Chad and I are both from cities on the East Coast. Uh, You know, I'm putting myself as a New Yorker here even though I'm not living there at the moment, where it's not – the college football sort of hotbed. Uh, and Chad, no disrespect to Boston College. Uh, you know, no disrespect or, taken. Yeah, or whatever sort of <laughs> is there. But like the but Austin, this is where you can answer this because you're based in the Carolinas. I am, and you went to Georgia Georgia Tech. So you you know you, you your your college football background is is greater than ours. And like I do wonder if part of my thinking when it comes to spring football is just that like I, I'm I. I'm not. I didn't grow up in a SEC town. Like mm-hmm. the dude who played for like LSU four years ago has no meaning to me. Like I, I'm not necessarily going to be gung ho about following said person's career. You know, if like like Chad said, if they were sort of the best at what they did, I'd I'd see him in the NFL. So is some of this that this is what I'm sort of like a like a premise for me um, when it comes to spring football? I've always thought like the big draw of spring football, the big marketing is like seeing some of these former college football stars in an area where you still care about them. And I just mm-hmm. wonder if that eliminates so at least some of the country, or a lot of the country, given that they, they're not necessarily going to connect with that. That's, that's part. I don't know if that's a good theory, but that's mm-hmm. always been part of my, why this spring football is not going to take theory. I don't think it's any, you know, coincidence that it's in Birmingham, this league. And something to remember <laughs> is that, you know, for the first couple of seasons, every game is going to be in Birmingham. Whether you play for Pittsburgh yeah. or you play for Boston, they're you know part of what Chad alluded to, keeping costs down. That starts by keeping all the games in Birmingham. And while there is a crowd for the Stallions, they're not getting much, many other people to come out for these other games. But you know, I have lived in the South now for like thirty years. I'm originally from the Pennsylvania, New Jersey area, so I've kind of gotten exposure to both worlds. And yeah, down here, like people love football. And they want to continue to see it in the spring because, 
you know, they're not really, there's not a lot of hockey fandom down here. People aren't really pining for, I think, the Stanley Cup playoffs in a lot of the Sun Belt. Uh, I know there are teams there, but I'm just talking, and there are strong pockets of, smaller pockets of hockey fandom there. But on the whole, I think a lot of people would generally like to watch more football. Uh, it's 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 an interesting debate, and I think like these kind of things probably get talked about in Fox's Fox Sports's boardroom and and ESPN's boardroom because the spring football always feels like the holy grail. But in this case, man, Fox has put I think it's a one hundred fifty million or whatever it is. Like you know, Lachlan Murdoch has put uh, has put a lot of money yeah. behind this. So I think this is a big a big thing for Eric Shanks. I think he's really gotten behind. Yes, that. I agree. Yeah. I agree. How soon until Mobile Hill, you think, now tries to run the numbers of this podcast versus the Marshan Oran report and the Jimmy Train SI Media podcast? <laughs> right after, you know, yeah, right after I get a dead. And who will he leak done. it to? He'll yeah. leak it till uh, he leaks it to the Post or he leaks it to <laughs> SBJ. SBJ. Um, all right, final, um, final one here. This is just for me, guys, because I happen to like the sport and I think it's interesting. You know, we. Um, in tennis, in terms of draws, I think you're a tennis fan too, Austin. I follow it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So in t- in tennis, obviously, the there's been an incredible run for the the broadcasters like ESPN, uh, thanks to uh, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Serena Williams. They've just like you're talking four of the greatest players, if not sort of the greatest players of all time, being in the same generation where you can market and put these guys and and this incredible woman on television. They're obviously all, um, you know especially Federer and Serena, there's not many years left, if any years left. And uh, Nadal is 35, Djokovic I think is 34. So there's going to be an end date on all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so like this past month, there's a kid, Carlos uh, Alcaraz, um, who beat Djokovic, he beat Nadal, and he looks to be like the next great player. And um, so let me sort of start with you, Austin. If you're ESPN... Or if you're, you know, the tennis channel or whatever, like, what do you, how do you, how do you try to think about sort of the post Federer Djokovic Nadal mm-hmm. world? And do you not try to basically introduce your audience as much as possible to a kid like this? Because um, you're going to need stars heading forward after this greatest generation of stars. Yeah, you do need stars. And this is a good first building block. 19 year old kid knocking out some big names. But I mean, what are you going to need? You need, com- you need competition. You need a foil. You need a competitor that he's going to be able to go against in some of these, A, go win a major first. And B, you got to have somebody you're competing with in those finals. It was always, I always loved to watch Nadal Federer. You know, I knew if I was getting a Nadal Federer match in, in, in a major, like that was, that was big time. And I had, that was appointment viewing and I had to turn in. And all of the people who are stakeholders in the tennis world, ESPN tennis in particular here, You know, that was good for them, particularly during a time when there are no U.S. names and we are still (laughs) stuck there 20 years later. There are no big U.S. names competing, especially in the men's side, you know, to be a finalist in one of those grand slams. That is what's going to really move the needle again for an ESPN or tennis channel is when they can really lean on a U.S. winner. And I, you know, a, a corollary is maybe F1 eventually gets a U.S. driver. I think that could also help drive F1 numbers from the U.S. Uh, Chad, uh, NFL schedule releases this week. I mean, you like this as television? I certainly like figuring out uh, afterwards what the big TV games are going to be. But to the NFL's credit, they have turned this into not just a not just a single day event anymore. It's now a week long event. We already know who they're playing. Do, do the dates really matter that much? I guess it does 
for I think it matters for in our world for us, yeah. What 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 who gets what schedule? And I guess this year in particular, like what Amazon gets, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, if you read the Peter Kings and some other people, uh, it seems like the league is going to really try to do Amazon right here in its first year to get them better games in a traditional Thursday night schedule. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, bottom line is it's just one more example of how brilliantly the NFL's managed to uh keep the keep the game and keep the league and people's consciousness year round i mean uh 10 years ago i would have thought the schedule release would have been something that you uh you know looked at in the agate page in the sports section or something something like that to see where when your team was playing but uh um now it gets the gets the buzz probably of uh um not day one of the draft, but uh, certainly day two, it feels like, where uh, everybody's sort of talking in the build-up to it to see where the games end up. And uh, it's a little bit beyond me, but seems to appeal to people. All right, the last one here. Either of you guys can weigh in, just so we can get it out there. The Wall Street Journal has a sports media job opening that they have uh, that they've put out there, uh, which is obviously good for all of us. And uh, I think the more this stuff is covered, the uh, the better, but that you know, if you're into this uh, space, that's a big time job uh, for the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal. I mean, you gotta, you know, I don't know how you feel about working for the Murdochs, but if you're cool with that, then like, uh, big time job. No, I, great reporters at the Wall Street Journal, by the way. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I must point out, I keep emailing in John Oran's resume just so I don't have to deal with it anymore. <laughs> How's that? Is it has, has the journal responded? Well, I, you know, I, I gave them his number. I got to see if he's gotten a call back. Yeah, it's uh, I feel like Rich you know, keeps sending Martians and no reply. <laughs> he's got a, he's got a good, no, I think Martian's happy at the post that uh, it fits his POV. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm happy at the athletic, although you know, eh, you know, listen, the athletic tomorrow could be like, hey, we're gonna Robinson Canoia. Sorry about that, buddy. Um, so you, <laughs> you never know. Hey, it just, it just um, goes to show you like everybody wants sports media is as popular as ever, it's as important as ever to the entertainment landscape, maybe like maybe more so than ever. It's not, the heyday is not in the past. The heyday is here. That's what I think about sports. Media. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is and in all and I've taken you guys much longer than I expected. So thank you for the extra time. The reality of, with all this, if we can be serious, is that media outlets always uh, undervalued the interest in sports media. Uh, and in many ways, the interest in sports business, but sports business sort of always, in some ways got coverage but just it's just very simple to sort of if you if you look at it this way how many of you can name who uh who were the lead uh broadcasters for sunday night football and if you're a sports fan for the most part you probably can say well that'd be al michaels and chris collinsworth if i asked you the same question who's the second starter on the seattle mariners pitching staff likely it is you you, i'm going to guess more than not will not know and so the people who bring you these games or the people who write about these games and a little lesser, et cetera, you know, people who are on these shoulder programmings, you just this is how this is how you consume sports through consume them through their images, through their pictures, through their words, through their prose. And so it's always impacted more people than I think your average, um, you know, editorial manager might think. And you're right, Austin, it's 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 good to see because I think they're I think the interest in this topic is more in the future than in the past and it will you know long after i'm done or all of us are done writing about this stuff i think that will continue that's just my belief i agree independent of me me doing this all right chad anything else you want to add and you got any boston related things you need to give us before we get out of here no no boston related things other than uh 
uh, curious to see. I, I saw you wrote about that a little bit, Richard, about moving Doris and if Mark Jackson got a coaching job or. Uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll let you two and my uh, listeners know on this. That column was written Sunday morning and bef- bef- before Mark Jackson was eliminated from the Kings uh, job. It would have been a much better column <laughs> had the Kings waited one day not to name Mike. I thought Brown. he was getting it at uh, that, that point. That was yeah. I did yeah. too. That's that's why I wrote that column because I thought he was the leading candidate. I, uh, I don't think he interviews that well. Reading, yeah, and reading the NBA, uh, you know, our NBA people and, and, and all the other NBA people, it seems like the Lakers would be a long shot for Mark Jackson, even though I hear LeBron vets him well. But, huh. yeah. I don't know. I mean, are you, is it are, like is there a time where if you're out of it for too long, these these teams don't want you anymore? Or no? I don't know. You got uh, Vermeil got a second chance. You know, That worked out. People get second chances. Yeah, he's still in people's consciousness, you know, because he's on on there with uh, Breen and Van Gundy and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, prime broadcast. Uh, and he, he's quick to remind you that he was there for the uh, the beginning of the this Warriors, uh, Warriors run. So <laughs> that's true. Austin, I had Chad on this, so I didn't I, I, I didn't bring it up with you. But Chad and I have already gone through uh, Urban Meyer returning to Fox. Yeah. So we'll, we'll you catch guys on that me. one when. Uh, yeah, we'll catch you on that one when it, uh, when it officially uh, happens. All right, Chad Finn is the sports media writer and general columnist for the Boston Globe, Austin Carp, managing editor, digital of the Sports Business Journal. Check out uh, their work in those two publications. You can actually follow. You can actually, you should follow them on Twitter um, because they're putting out uh, content on there often, and, and particularly if you're into viewership. Uh, as I've said many times in print and on this podcast, Austin Carp should be one of the pillars that you follow on this stuff, along with people like. Uh, John Lewis of Sports Media Watch and Anthony Krupe over at uh, Sportico. And then, yeah, like at least for a uh, network perspective, the Flora Kellys and Mike Mulvihills of the world are worth following as well, even though they're coming from their own uh, prism of who they work for. Uh, Chad and Austin, thank you very much for your time and your insights, and, uh, and I will have you back on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Austin Carp and Chad Finn for their time and their insights. Those guys are always great. They will obviously be back. Uh, if you like this kind of stuff, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, wherever uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Previous podcast before this one, Larry Colmas, voice of the Kentucky Derby, on his fantastic uh, Rich Strike uh, winning call of that race and some other, uh, some other topics of interest if you are interested in how a horse race caller does his or her job before that life after a sports media career a conversation with amy moritz amy k nelson and kat o'brien uh head to the uh, archives page whether it's conversation with uh or conversation whether it's uh, susie colbert as a recent guest gus johnson as a recent guest uh did uh, espn investigative reporter paula levine and tom Junot on their remarkable penn state story Lisa Byington, Kate Scott, voices of the Bucks and Sixers reflected on their first year. Fox Sports MLB broadcaster Joe Davis on being the new voice of the World Series. And a lot there for you if you are interested in this content. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti, as always, for his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Canes 13, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.